Hello, everybody. It's TJ Zuppi and Zach Meisel back for another edition of the Selby is Godcast. Zach joining me from Cincinnati. What's life like on the road, bud? <laughs> it's so lonely. Uh, I miss my friends, my colleagues. Um, it's it's weird. Everything about so this year. So it's basically just what you have been doing at home for the past three months. It's no different. But I have Still a missing dog friends and a wife. And family. I have companions. <laughs> you guys aren't quarantined in separate rooms? Does, no, does Linus ever yet. wear a mask? Is this, it, by law, is he required to wear a mask when you guys go to the park? No, and he spreads more droplets than anybody. <laughs> I don't need to know any more about that. Um, it's weird. I mean, this whole season has felt like the apocalypse, right? Uh, or the walking dead. And that's, that's what it feels like now. I mean, it's, we'll, we'll get to the Indians offense coming up. So you just hey -oh. you no, settle I mean, down. You, you go to, into a hotel, you don't see another human being. Um, you walk to the ballpark and walk home at night and you don't see another human being. The Reds have the visiting media, a.k.a. me, sitting all <laughs> by myself in, like, it's, they have, like, a restaurant in the right field corner. It's, I'm, like, basically I could lick the foul pole, and I'm the only one out there. <laughs> I wouldn't advise outside. that. Not sanitary. <laughs> and I'm sitting outside, and it's, that's it. I can see the, the Reds media in their new press box along the... Uh, third baseline um and they're very far away it's 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 so weird and quiet although i will say like great american ballpark is a lot louder during these games than progressive field is and i don't know if that's just because they have their grounds crew sitting in the stands literally playing instruments <laughs> um but it's it was pretty loud in the opener on monday night yeah, that was one thing you could notice on the broadcast. The, the the crowd noise wasn't picked up as much on the broadcast that they're pumping through the speakers, but you could certainly hear reactions and jeers and think like a close call. You would hear, and you're wondering, well, where is that coming from? Is that the dugout? And so they actually have grounds crew in the stands, and are are they <laughs> are they obligated to make noises that sound like the home crowd? So these guys, these guys deserve raises because they had a busy night on Monday. They, first of all, you had a two hour rain delay. And so they were, you know, messing with the tarp and making sure the field was ready. And then they go into this, into the seats, kind of like short right field, basically just off the side of the, the home dugout. And they're sitting there and I'm like, okay, cool. Like they get to watch the game and when they need to, to uh, go take care of the field between certain innings, they can go do that. And then all of a sudden I start hearing these, like, I knew it was maracas. I'm like, who is playing maracas right now? So I look down. Yeah. Every member of the grounds crew has an instrument. There's tambourines. Someone's got bongos. They're shaking maracas. Uh, they, they've got drumsticks and they're banging on the seats in front of them. So you have just constant noise. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're playing these instruments at like a rapid beat right until the pitcher lets go of the pitch. So it was like, I mean, I, it was, 
I remember that being a thing when the Indians played in Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, except it was much louder and you had many more people playing instruments. Um, but this kind of reminded me of that. And then what's crazy is they're also the ball boys. So when you have a foul ball down the line, this guy would drop his maracas instantly, hop over the, the railing and sprint to pick up the ball and then sprint back to his seat. It was madness. That was something I noticed, that how quickly they pounce on those foul balls. The dude that jumps over the... I, I, I Just looking at that, I pulled three muscles at the guy jumping over the, <laughs> the side barricade. <laughs> like Instinctively, I'm expecting him to be just wearing his briefs as he runs onto the field or something. Uh, crazy, but that was uh, interesting to hear on the broadcast. I had to keep reminding myself that that was what I was hearing. Uh, but it did make for a unique experience, and it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to see how other cities are handling this because we've seen now how Progressive Field does it, and they mix in a lot of the same sorts of um, you know cr- crowd building little anthems and little sound drops, and they still mix those in. And then the Indians were just in Minnesota, and they're still doing that 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 beat that you think you're in the club in between pitches. And it's like, you mm-hmm. still, you still need to be pumping that through. Like when Max Kepler takes ball three outside and <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, man, like, you could just, you could just calm down for a half second, man. It's a three, one count. Let's see what happens. Um, but it's, it's kind of cool to see how every city is trying to, to make it a, a semi normal game atmosphere in a not so normal setting. So the one thing that no one has been able to solve is you're, you're missing the normal, like, build on a fly ball. Like, Joey Votto hits that home run last night, and normally fans would kind of shriek instantly because he, he struck it well, and, you know, you can tell it's going to have a chance. And so there would be this, like, anticipation, and you could you, – you could, Based on the crowd noise, you'd have an idea of whether it was going to be a home run. And then once it clears the fence, obviously they go crazy. And they got that part right. But you just have no idea on these fly balls whether they have legitimate chances of of going out or not. Because you don't have the fans going, uh, or, you know, being pissed off when Lindor hits his home run. Like, um so I think that that's a big thing that's missing. It's like a guy will hit a, a really well-struck fly ball, and it's just like, there's no change in the tenor of the crowd noise until it yeah. goes over the fence. That's yeah, it's, it, it is weird. And you can certainly tell if you have an ear for it. Though I will say, I think the broadcast, the ones that I've seen so far, uh, STO a little bit on Fox, outside of when the virtual crowd completely decapitated Nelson Cruz, I have felt like the broadcasts make it feel like that if you're not watching, if you're not seeing the huge zoomed out picture of what the stands look like, or you're not paying attention on a pop-up or a foul ball, if you're just watching the normal broadcast that's taking place uh, in between pitches, you, I don't think you would necessarily tell a big difference. Just watching the broadcast outside of, again, when you get those huge pictures of the ballpark. Yeah, well, and I also... the. Just the the steady baseline, like that hum from the crowd noise that they have is really good. And like if you're watching on TV and you don't 
the, the shot doesn't show any seats. I think you would think you're watching a normal game. Um, so that's, that's been good, but it's weird. Did you like the, the Fox, the fake fans, the CGI that where Nelson Cruz just randomly walks into the abyss? Um, I do enjoy when things go wrong. <laughs> that made it really funny and very memeable. Uh, no, I don't think it's necessary. I feel like every team is doing something different in their stands. Minnesota had the giant heads behind home plate, and I thought that was a little <laughs> distracting, actually. Uh, I, I, I think Cincinnati has done a pretty good job with the way that they have their fans set up behind home plate, where if you don't really focus on it, it looks like people are sitting back there, so that's fine. I don't think you need a virtual crowd. I, I, I really don't. I don't think it's that important. I mean, it's not like you can really bring them to life like a normal crowd would. So I don't think I think that's taking it one step too far. That's not really needed, at least in, yeah. in my opinion. I'm with you. It'd be better if there was just nothing there, like the Indians offense, if you will. Uh, so, oh. you know, we spent uh, some time talking about the bats last last show and yeah who were those idiots talking about how the lineup was actually decent (laughs) uh i'm sure you've done some radio interviews i've done some radio interviews where i talked about the offense being probably fine and so a lot of my expectation of the indians offense being average-ish maybe a a tick above comes from the fact that (laughs) we talked about this through text maybe it's a, a hardball dynasty thing because in that fake game that is so very real to us the players have ratings and so the game simulates but the ratings are there and they they stay pretty steady throughout the season and if a guy's having a bad season but he has good ratings against right-handed pitching against you know his, his power rating his contact rating his eye and he's having a bad mm-hmm. season you just kind of look at it and you go okay well you know I can tangibly see that nothing has changed as far as his skill level. It's just probably some bad luck in the sequencing. Things are going to even out. And I probably have taken that maybe even a little bit too far to the real world because I look at the top five in the Indians lineup and I see a lot of talented guys. Even Cesar Hernandez has done pretty much what you want him to do out of the leadoff spot, which is get on base quite a bit. And I look at Ramirez, Lindor, Santana, Reyes, and even some guys at the bottom, I still think these guys should be able to score some runs. And so I go, am I that concerned about it? Do I think that they're just going to do this for the rest of the season? I don't. And so while in a normal season, I would be telling you, everything's fine. It's going to even out. I, I look at the talent that the lineup has, the true talent, and I think they should be okay. I keep reflecting back on something we talked about, about this being a season full of chaos and it being such a sprint instead of a marathon. I don't know. I feel like if you're freaking out a little bit about the offense, you have a right to because the game in the, in the season is so much shorter than it typically is. So I would normally be saying, you've got so many more games for this all to get evened out. Right now I'm looking at the schedule and I'm thinking, no, panic away. They keep doing this bullshit and it takes as long as it could take to get them out of this funk they could be in a world of hurt before they emerge from this slumber. So here's the issue. I don't think Oscar Mercado is going to end the season with a 214 OPS. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think 
Carlos Santana is going to hit 200 with a 286 slugging percentage. I don't think Framo Reyes is going to go the entire season without a home run. There will be regression even in a 60-game season, and those guys will will rebound. Jordan Luplo isn't going to go the whole season without recording a single hit. The problem is, is that when those guys rebound and the offense returns to an acceptable level, odds are the pitching is not going to be quite up to the standard it's been so far. Relievers not named Brad Hand have allowed one earned run in 24 and two-thirds innings this season. You know, your starting pitching is setting records every night. So there's going to be some regression there, too. And the question is, can you have enough offensive resurgence to offset whatever regression happens to your pitching staff? You know, on the night, there's going to be a night this week where the Indians finally bust out and score six or seven runs. And is that going to be the same night where the the pitching staff has their first misstep? and gives up eight runs, like, that's that's the issue to me, is that you've wasted incredible pitching. And at some point, it's going to come around, you know, maybe they'll learn that pitchers can just throw them change-ups and sliders, and they'll swing away and not be patient. And they'll start hitting. But I just, I'd be concerned that, you know, the night where Framil Reyes finally hits a three-run homer is going to be the same night that Karinchuk can't find the strike zone and Nick Wickering gives up a couple runs or, you know, Aaron Savali gives up five and five innings, like something like that. So that's what I worry about, especially in a shortened season. Um, but I also think, I mean, we talked about this, like I'm not concerned. I'm still not concerned that they're going to miss the playoffs and it's a 16 team field. And that's basically what matters are they equipped for October? Obviously not if they hit the way they're hitting, but if you believe that the top five yeah. in the lineup is too talented to keep going like this, then I think you're, you're not too concerned and you're not ready to panic at this point. If it wasn't for the expanded playoffs, it would be full panic mode. I don't like, and we talked about this last show too, with in regard to the closer and is it time to hit the panic button? I, I hate, the way that that's phrased. I hate that it's thrown out like it's a Twitter survey question or a call-in question for a talk show because that's not really how these things work. Um, hitting the yeah, panic it's, it's like you either, you either have to be accepting of the team hitting 190 or you have to be panicked. There's no in between. Right. Well, I, I would be panicked if this continues. <laughs> if, if they continue to hit like this for the rest of the season – they don't have a prayer of doing anything, maybe not even reaching the playoffs. So to that extent, yeah, I would be panicked if this is the normal baseline level of the offense. I don't think it is talent-wise. My point is that in a 60-game season, as we've talked about, you could get sample sizes that are kind of funky, and they don't emerge from this the way that they would have in 162 games. Now, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe they make it to the playoffs, and at that point, because you're throwing another round into this, because you're throwing even you know, smaller sample sizes of, of series into this, anything can legitimately happen, and the team that does hit well or it just hits timely home runs is often the one that's going to advance, especially if you're pitching the way that we think that they're capable of. big problem with this offense right now is they're not hitting the home run, and a lot of their offense is based on Ramirez, Lindor, Santana, Reyes, hitting those 
crippling two or three run home runs. We're just not seeing that right now. And when they are, they're typically winning because the pitching has been so good. I don't know that the pitching is just going to continue on the same level. You could say they weren't as special the second time through the rotation, but they also faced some better offenses and the twins never just came out and slugged the hell out of it. Uh, Shane Bieber was absolutely spectacular against that Minnesota lineup. You know, so much so they got Josh Donaldson knocked out of the lineup uh, just because of maybe his flailing, trying to catch that, that breaking ball in the dirt. But, I, I will not say that you should have some level of concern about this offense just because all of our normal expectations, all of the way that we typically weigh things are based on a full regular season, and we're not getting that. So I don't know what to expect, and I don't know how long it's going to take them to come out of these doldrums. And every game that they don't is another game closer to you know, where they ultimately end up. Yeah, and that's... That's the thing, like, it, it, this season more than any other is going to be, like, the playoffs are going to be separate from the regular season, because it, a three-game series is a complete coin flip. Home field advantage is not very important, and teams are going to be able to really manipulate their rosters to get the most out of, out of these series. So, it is just about getting there. Obviously, you want to be playing well, you want to have pinpointed some sort of formula that seems to lead to, to winning. You know, we know the Indians, it's, it's pitching, but again, you have to have some sort of offense in support of that, or it goes to waste as we've seen. So it, it's tough. Like, I, I also wonder, you know, if the Indians end up going like 33 and 27, but a lot of that is just beating up on Kansas city and Detroit and, and Pittsburgh you know, how are people going to evaluate this team? How are they going to feel about their chances going into the playoffs? It's it's going to be interesting. You know, we're not going to learn all that much about these teams this season. You just can't. Um, I mean, the Orioles are 5-3. and three. Shit. They didn't have five wins last year until, like, well, probably, like, the same time. Um, so, it's... You can't draw conclusions in 2020. I just... You, you kind of have to just roll, roll with the punches and you know hope they turn it around offensively. Well, yeah, but you just have no idea how long that's going to take. And guys, right now, Fran Mel Reyes just doesn't look like he has a clue as to, to what he's trying to do offensively. Yeah, you know, guys, guys are. Uh, it seems like guys have tried to be patient, but maybe in a in a way of of being patient, they're letting hittable pitches go and putting themselves in bad counts, then they have to expand the strike zone. Um, well, let me say this. Okay. Everybody wants to call for Ty Van Berkeley's job. Look, I I've always said this, and, and TJ, we've said this on the podcast. You don't just fire the hitting coach one night and then the team starts scoring eight runs a game after that. It doesn't work like that. Now, Also, he's Ty not the only hitting coach on the, on the stats. Absolutely. So, and they, they've expanded they, the staff. So they split the workload. You've got Ty Van Berkeley working with half the hitters, Victor Rodriguez working with half the hitters, and they have added two coaches. Justin Tooley is supposed to be the the hitting advance report scouting analytics guy, basically the um, the Brian Sweeney of the hitting side. Um, and it, let me say this. Ty Van Berkeley has held this job 
the duration of the Francona, Brad Mills era in Cleveland, I'm more amazed that he's held that job just because hitting coaches, pitching coaches, like they don't stick around in one place for that long period across the league. Um, you know, you either get a promotion somewhere or just a better opportunity in, in maybe a city you like better, or you get fired. Like that shit happens all the time. So I'm, I'm amazed he's still the hitting coach for a lot of reasons. Um, and I certainly would have understood if during one off season, they made a change at some point over the last handful of years, but they haven't. And just firing a guy in, you know, 20 games into a season, 10 games into a season, isn't going to just magically change things. Um, so you, you're stuck with what you have. And it, it's also on the players. You know, they have data. They're given information. They need to understand what makes them successful, what pitchers are trying to do to them. Certainly, I'm not absolving the hitting coaches of any blame here. They're, you look at some of the trends and you can absolutely say, like, why aren't these hitters making these adjustments? Like, we can see this just from looking at baseball savant. <laughs> like, um, but every but, season brings a new set of adjustments, a new set of challenges. And we're how many games into, into this season? You, those sorts of adjustments aren't being made immediately, overnight. Sometimes it takes weeks for a guy to, to find an adjustment that works for him. Sometimes it never happens over a full season. Uh, but guys are constantly tinkering, and this is not things. The, the, this is not something that just happens overnight. You just spot something, um, you look at something on video, and you go into the cage, and the next day it's all figured out. It rarely works like that. So for a coach to do his mm -hmm. job, it's not going to happen over a week period. Um, and even if it is something that you can pinpoint, it doesn't mean it, that it's all going to be wrapped up and everything's going to be fine within a week or two. That adds to it because, as I'm saying, I don't, I don't have doubts that based on the talent level if given 162 games the Indians could finish adequately offensively it's just do they have enough time right now to work themselves out of this funk that adds to my level of concern with where they're at offensively not that the talent has changed but just based on what you have in front of you do you have enough time to get it turned around in a timely manner I don't know I none of us know the answer to that right now because this is so unprecedented yeah, I, I, I think there is enough time. I mean, they still have 50 games left. That's a lot of time. But, again, like, you're not going to get – Bieber's not going to have a zero ERA at the end. Well, he might. But, you know, other guys aren't going to have – Not putting it past him. Other guys aren't going to be able to pitch at Cy Young levels the entire season. The bullpen's not going to be as lights out as it's been. So, it's just a matter of how quickly and, and can it – can it rebound enough to offset whatever regression um, befalls the pitching staff? I don't, I don't know. That's what will determine whether this team is, is legitimate or not. Yeah, I mean, the sample sizes, too, are so reduced that <clears throat> Ramirez comes out on fire in the first week, looks like the MVP caliber player that we've seen so many times. And then he has a, a tough four- or five-game stretch. And then what? You know, what, what are you led to believe? In a normal setting, you would say, no, you saw enough of that first week. You came out on fire. The numbers still overall look good. So you think, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's still an MVP caliber talent. But right now, everything is so compartmentalized and everything's so, so compressed that it's I, trying to, to draw conclusions from this, as you said. It's, 
it's nearly impossible. The only conclusion you can come away from this season so far is that Shane Bieber is just uh, godlike. Hang on, hang on. Let me ask you a question. Is there a better chance that Fran Mill Reyes goes the entire season without hitting a home run or that Shane Bieber goes the entire season without allowing a home run? Uh, I think it's a far better chance of Bieber. I mean, that's that's like a 50-50 premise at this point, the way that he's pitched. Um, truly incredible to see his ascension and the way he just continues to develop it. He could he could have just looked at what he did at the end of last year, the totality of the season, and said, I'm just going to do that again. But no, he continues to work. Um, and with the way pitch development has become such a thing now in baseball, you're seeing guys that are already really good taking it to a new level. And from to his credit, uh, even talking to him as you know, recently as his second season in the big leagues, he was taking concepts and understanding what he was trying to do, even if he didn't have all the technology at every single point. I, I think back to talking to him about the, the refinement he was working on with his changeup. And he didn't, mm-hmm. have a, he didn't have a rap soto. He didn't have radar tracking and, and, and cameras just watching it out of his hands to see exactly what was happening. But he understood those concepts and was able to implement a plan that thought, how does this pitch move when it comes out of my hand this way? And how does it move when I come out? So he's thinking about the right things, even when he doesn't necessarily even have the, the technology in place to, to go out and implement that. That was one thing that talking to him a few years ago that I left the conversation thinking, this is a guy that gets it from a standpoint of how technology could make you better. And it was something that already had me thinking that he can embrace that and become an even better version of himself. And right now he's, He's all world. Yeah, so the Indians suggested to him, I think he was in double A, and his numbers were fantastic. And they were like, you know, if you want to make it to the next level, you need a change up. And he's like, why? I mean, look at my numbers. <laughs> like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Strikeout rate's good. I don't walk anybody. They're like, I know. But it's one thing to get hitters out in Akron but you're going to need another out pitch against left-handed hitters if you want to make it in the big leagues. So he starts working on this changeup. He says, okay. He's like, tell me what I need to know. They give him some data. And, you know, it's, it was rough for a while, but you have to, you have to work your way through it. You have to un- believe in, first of all, what the Indians are telling you and, and trust these pitching coaches and coordinators. This is what, has made their pitching development factory so successful um, is that they can explain things to pitchers in a way that makes sense. It's easy to, to digest and didn't, didn't hurt having a guy, didn't hurt having a guy like Trevor Bauer on the staff too, where you could point to and and say, here, here is a, is a representation of how this can work if you dedicate yourself to this. So that's the thing. Um, you know, he gets to the majors. It's still, I mean, would we agree it's his fifth best pitch? Yeah, absolutely. And he doesn't throw it a ton, but he has, he can. And it's just putting that thought in the hitter's mind, like, you know, he could go change up here. He could go this, he could go that. Um, and he, yeah. So Trevor Bauer helped him kind of refine it one off season. Um, he was still working on it this past off season. And oh, by the way, he kind of converted his slider into a cutter, his one curveball into a slider, his, 
his main curveball now, which has just been absolutely disgusting, responsible for 15 of his 27 strikeouts. Nine of those 15 third strikes bounced in the dirt, and yet hitters still can't help themselves. Um, it's it's incredible. I mean, he, Roberto Perez said he's got five pitches he can turn to at any time. We've known since the day they drafted him, he's had elite command. So it's it's... It's amazing because you always hear people in baseball talking about player development and how it's not linear. Like, it's not just like you take two steps forward in year one and two steps forward in year two and two steps forward in year three. You know, guys have setbacks. They have phases where something's not working and they have to work out the kinks and they have to fix their mechanics or overhaul their delivery or learn a new pitch or just have rotten luck that sets them back and they don't have confidence. And Bieber's has been linear, and it's just been like enormous gains every single year. It's it's ridiculous. This guy was drafted four years ago in the fourth round. Okay, a lot of times it takes pitchers four years just to get to the majors. Now, four years later, we're talking about this guy in the same breath of Jacob Degrom and you know Max Scherzer and some of the best pitchers in baseball. Um, and I know it's only been two starts, and he's not going to keep this up all season. But you can see the ingredients there that make him an ace. And look, I had this argument with everybody's best friend on Twitter, Hiram, a few weeks ago, right before opening day, where I, I referred to Bieber as the staff ace, and he was saying, no, Clevenger's the ace. Everybody knows it. It's not up for debate. I'm like, look, Clevenger has incredible raw stuff and power, and he can throw 97, 98 when he's right. But, like, Bieber, since day one of spring training in February, has just looked the part. No one was able to hit him in spring training, whether his teammates or opponents. Um, He came to summer camp and was lights out from the first moment he stepped on the field. And he you can just tell he has taken those steps. And he just again, he just looks the part. You know, when you're watching him pitch, he is in complete control. He can turn to any pitch at any time. And he always throws strikes. I mean, the, he made the Twins look so foolish on so many times. Josh Donaldson looked like like a freaking high school hitter, uh, just completely playing mind games with him um, to get him to swing at you know three two curveballs out of the zone with the bases loaded or a couple guys on base. So yeah, he's it, it's it's incredible and it's amazing to just think of the ascent in such a short period of time. Should acknowledge that this is being recorded before start number three. <laughs> and based on what we said about the offense last week, we cannot be held responsible for whatever happens in start number three. Based He's going to get lit up tonight, isn't everything he? Everything that we've talked about. I don't, I don't put it past that actually happening since, you know, this is a simulation that we live in. Um, it would just make too much sense for the writers of 2020 to, to work that in. Um, yeah, I think one of the, the most fun, to, fun, fun things to watch about him pitch, and I tweeted this the night of his last start, is you have guys that, that have filthy stuff. And he does. He, he does have filthy stuff. It's not elite velocity, but it's good enough uh, to certainly get by. But when you command it as well as he does, and you combine that with a conviction and a belief and a confidence in himself to throw any pitch in any count, what would you think if, as you, if you're up there as a hitter and you see the first pitch out of his hands and it's a curveball strike one and then it's a cutter strike two 
And then you're thinking, oh, two, he's pitched me completely backwards. Do I look, do I look cutter? Do I look curveball? Do I look breaking ball? Uh, do, do, is, he, is this the one time he is going to throw the changeup? Oh, no, here comes the 94-mile-per-hour the heater dotted on the corner, and I'm heading back to the dugout already. Um, <laughs> so to watch someone that, that can command every pitch the way that he can right now um, and the confidence to throw it at any point. I mean, he's out there. He so rarely gets behind in the count, but if it's 3-1, you're expecting the heater, and he can rip off the breaking ball, and it drops in there for a strike. Or you can even have a guy that is looking heater and it's a 3-1 and he, he expands the zone because he's thinking it's absolutely going to be a strike here. And nope, it's definitely the breaking ball dropped out of the bottom of the zone. That's what's so much fun to watch him pitch right now because it is so very surgical. It's, I, it's wrong to, to, to lay this upon him, but it's like watching Greg Maddox at, in his prime yep. where he could just dot any part of the zone that he wanted as Earl Hershiser says, he could throw it in a teacup if he wanted to. <laughs> and <laughs> that, that, that maybe is what baseball will have to consider to make this an, a fair fight for, for Bieber's strike zone against the hitters right now. But that, that's what's most fun because it's not just about the raw stuff, which is there, again, but it's, it's the art of pitching that he has to this point mastered. And a credit to him and a credit to the Indians coaching staff, a credit to the catchers for everyone being able to be on that same page. And again, have the conviction to do those sorts of, of things that were considered unconventional several years ago. It's not so much about establishing the fastball and working off the secondary stuff. It's taking a pitcher's strengths and working on them and working off them. And right now Beaver, everything is working as a strength for him. You know, one assistant coach who nobody's calling for to get fired. Carl Willis. Uh, well, true. Yes. Um, I was going to say Mike Sarba, but <laughs> love Sarbi. Um, no, I, I think it's funny. You need the baseline. You have to be super athletic because that's how you're able to repeat your delivery and keep consistent commit or mechanics and also throw 95 miles an hour. Um, but there's so much. I mean, you see pitchers just making leaps in their potential based on the appetite for information and I mean we I think Trevor Bauer kind of opened all of our eyes to this when he was in Cleveland but it's there's so much data out there and pitchers can develop just by learning like and, and using the data and, and studying what can work and how can I improve my arsenal and you know what can I learn about sequencing that would play to my benefit? So there's just so much um, personal growth available that has nothing to do with the physical tools. Um, and obviously, you need the well, you need the physical tools to be able to to make stuff work. You know, not yeah, everybody can throw a certain slider or a changeup. And, and yes, velocity, velocity is, provides such a, a sure. tremendous baseline. Um, but it, it's it's amazing. I mean, you, it, we've seen Clevenger follow a similar path just based on him studying biomechanics and, and looking at just pouring over video in between every inning of his starts and, and on off days. And, you know, Bieber's done the same. I think you're seeing it with Plesak and Savali now. So it's you establish a culture and Bauer played a big role in this. I think Mickey Calloway certainly did. And and. Carl Willis and, and his crew have 
have just kind of kept it going. And, um, you know, guys get to the major leagues and it's like you alluded to earlier. You're not just like, all right, I'm here. It's done. Yeah. No, you get to the major leagues and it's now is where the real learning starts. Now is when you can, Brian Sweeney's quote to me last year was, we want to make pitchers better than they've ever been, but even better than they've ever dreamed of being. And you're saying that. Yep. And, and pitch development being such a big part of it, but also guys having an understanding of how that can benefit them, but just embracing it. You have to have that buy-in from players. Um, and I think it's getting, you know, from, from the outside looking in, it looks like it's getting easier from that perspective because it's not such a, a foreign thing anymore. Now you have so many examples of guys that are making themselves better that, you know, you're having guys that in the past probably wouldn't even think to, to go enter a pitch laboratory. You know, they, I, I, I got, I got to figure it out. I'm a veteran. I know what I got to do. Now you're seeing guys try to hold on to the end of their careers. Guys like Josh Tomlin, you know, who are seeking mm-hmm. out information that are trying to lengthen out their careers because they know, you know, what they've been doing, it's, it's not going to work anymore. And they've got to find ways to constantly reinvent themselves. And especially with this, the way the game is, you know, players being so good and hitters being so good and, and knowing what they're trying to do, you have to go out there with a pitch mix of three, four, five pitches that are truly above average. If you're going to be any good, uh, especially if you're not throwing 97, 98 miles per hour, even if you're throwing 95 hitters can still t- demolish that if it's thrown in the right spot. And another fun thing is, is just seeing how many pitchers on the Indian staff are embracing the thought of, you know, a guy like Adam Plutko, who doesn't have a tremendous fastball, but is utilizing it more up in the zone because, uh, in a, in a vacuum, throwing the 92-mile-per-hour fastball up in the zone, maybe that's going to get hit for a home run a lot if you just continue to do that. But if you work it in off the curveball that's down and seeing how the secondary stuff can play off of that and the sequencing of those pitches together, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty good playing. I mean, I, I think it makes far too much sense to just go with the tried-and-true ga- game plan of fastball up, curveball down, and try to tunnel those as best as you can and use that as your – you're working off point and focus on throwing your best stuff. And we're seeing that with the Indians pitching staff. So that part's fun that as much as the, the offense has been worthy of ripping your hair out in, in frustration, this pitching staff has, has been a joy to watch. Who do you think won the Twitter war between Trevor Bauer and Mike Clevenger? I think I have to give the edge to Clev. It's, it's so unfortunate that those, those two guys didn't get to match up. Yeah, I mean, 2020 couldn't even give us that. Um, yeah, so Clev's tweet was, <laughs> Sunshine versus the kid who ruined the World Series with a drone. Sunshine versus a guy with a career four ERA. Sunshine versus a guy who threw ball over the center field wall during meltdown. I mean, that is just, woo. Um, yeah, and so many people were tweeting saying, are these guys, do they actually hate each other? Are they friends? <laughs> it's like, tough to know with, with Bauer because, you know, the guys that he has claimed to be friends in the past aren't necessarily his friend. But we actually have evidence of those two somewhat liking each other. They're I mean, good friends, but better rivals, I think. Yeah, I mean, I like to talk shit about you. You do? Anyways, uh, let's go to <laughs> the random... Cleveland Indian of the day, shall we? Let's do it. I hope we haven't done this one before, 
but uh, if we have, just pretend we haven't. This right-handed pitcher. It's always just a reliever. Come on. (laughs) Uh, In fairness, he started 49 games in his career. He also made Mm -hmm. 678 career appearances in in the major leagues. So this is not just some rando. And his name isn't Rando either. Um, career ERA of 397. He pitched for the Indians in 1998. Ugh. And Chris Haney. No. Here's the kicker. Despite having 678 career appearances in the major leagues, a lengthy career, I mean, parts of 14 years in the major leagues, he only made three appearances with the Indians. Oh, this should be easy. Absolutely. So I'm assuming you have no guesses thus far. So I will tell you <laughs> that he spent most of his career with the Padres, uh, second most years with the Giants. He made appearances with San Diego, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Oakland, Arizona, Chicago. The Joe Roa? It is not Joe Roa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Baltimore and Detroit, along with Cleveland. His three-game stint with Cleveland was his shortest stint with any team. Right-handed reliever. What's his hometown? (laughs) Uh, He was born in Pasadena, California. Drafted Uh, by the Padres in the 20th round of the 98 draft. How did the Indians acquire him? I'm going to assume this was a... Signing, but let me find transactions. Oh, he was actually traded by the Tigers with Dave Roberts for Geronimo Barella. Hmm. Hmm. This was in uh, 1998. That was such a weird... No one ever talked about that season. Less than a month later, he was traded by the Indians to the Athletics for a player to be named later, which became Adam Robinson, who never made it to the big leagues. That 98 team was good. Sean Dunstan at second base. (laughs) Imagine if they had added an ace at the deadline. I mean, they had the Yankees. They were up 2-1 in the series. They had Knobloch pointing and John Mike Wilson swimming. Yep. So, what was his last season in the majors? 2006 with the Giants. Oh, wow. Began his career in 93 with the Padres. How am I ever going to get this? Was a starter briefly at the beginning of his career, but from 98 on, he never started another game. Hmm. It's someone that, like, when I say his name, you'll know who it was, but you may have forgotten he even pitched for the Indians. Um, hang on. It's not David Weathers, but it's someone no. like that. I don't know. Made his debut at the age of 25. His last game was at the age of 38. He's now 53 years old. What's he doing now? His agent was Paul Cohen. Ah. When's his birthday? uh, (laughs) July 5th. 
1963? Yes, 30 days ago. Uh, he, his brother was also a uh, semi-prominent, eh, 11 years in the big leagues. Yeah, pretty prominent uh-huh. closer. Huh. Uh, since you're probably not going to get it, his brother's name is Todd? Doug Jones. No. No, Doug Jones is the guy who pitched the Indians in the early 90s. But didn't he come back? He did, yes. Okay. Doug Jones is pretty high up on the save list, I think, for the Indians. You made me think of Todd Jones, but Todd Jones was the Detroit closer. He was terrible for late in his career. Um, I closer named Todd. I don't know. Is that a give up? No. So many people are in their car right now screaming at me. I don't know if that's the case. Who was a prominent closer named Todd? Well, if I tell you that, you're probably going to get his brother. Who did? Can you tell me who Todd played for? Sure. Uh, He played for the Cardinals and the Dodgers. Uh, This is embarrassing. He led the league in saves twice. That's impossible. Uh, including in 96 when he saved 44 games. That's his brother, Todd. What the Tim, hell? Tim saved... Oh, I just gave you his first name. Uh, he saved 71 games in his career. Tim and Todd. This is, yes. This is so <laughs> frustrating. Tim and Todd. I don't know. Final answer... This gentleman goes by the name of Tim Worrell. <laughs> with his bro- brother Todd Worrell. I did not know that there were two of them. I think I thought that they were, were the, the same, same guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, a good one. Man. Yeah, it's weird to find a guy that spent uh, a lot of time in the big leagues. I mean, he had more time in the big leagues than his brother did. Uh, 8.7 career war. Career Todd Worrell led the league in saves? What the hell? Twice. Twice. I was trying to think of if Jeff Shaw had a brother. Ah, yes. Uh, similar time, around the same time with the Dodgers. I think he took over right yeah. after Worrell, perhaps. Maybe not. I don't remember. Uh, but yeah, that uh, Todd finished with a 10.9 career war. So he just... Beat his brother by a couple of wins. Yeah, shut up, all you people listening. You didn't know that either. (laughs) Uh, If you knew the random Cleveland Indian of the day, you can leave us a five-star review. And be sure to leave us uh, some kind words. If you didn't know it, then go on over to the Apple Store and leave us a five-star review. And tell your friends. We'd like to expand the podcast, especially now that we're back and the season's going and it's not normal, but we're trying to treat it as close to normal as possible. And so, get back on the train. Any parting words? Yeah, rest in peace to Dick Goddard. Prayers to his family. Cleveland icon. 
moment of silence. And well, I'll let you know if you can subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. And of course, you can find us over at Anchor on Twitter at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel, and at Selby is Godcast. Until next time, be good, everybody. We're out of here. See ya.